Audio Conversation with Christopher Knowles, recorded May 29th, 2011. Chris Knowles has been on this podcast format three different times before this. So this is his fourth appearance. And the reason I asked the guy back on over and over again is because I just, I'm just continually impressed with the way his mind works. Uh, recently, and I'll talk about this early on uh, when I introduce him, uh, he did a series of posts. And I will put links to those posts. This is in the last month or so. There's five of them. And I consider these things recommended reading uh, for anyone delving into these subjects uh, if they want to dig a little deeper and get down below the waterline compared to what you may find in what amounts to the uh, standard nuts and bolts literature. Um, this guy has a lot to share. He also started using the term, and this, this is during the set of five posts, he started using the term the elusive companion hypothesis. And he uses this as, a, as an alternative to the ultra-terrestrial or um, the crypto-terrestrial as a way to try to define this elusive phenomena where there's a plenty of evidence that indicates that the UFO phenomena is too simple uh, a framework. Something is going on that is more complex and that indicates that these entities, these visitors, these aliens, have somehow been associated with us, have traveled a parallel track with us, that they are somehow intertwined with us in a way that um, that makes the simple term UFO or UFO phenomena it, it it just it just seems incomplete when you look at the the bigger body of evidence. And in order to look at that bigger body of evidence, you've got to dig pretty deep, and you have to be very open-minded. As always, I had an amazing time with this conversation, and I really feel strongly if you listen to this thing and pay attention, you'll get a lot out of it. Please enjoy. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for saying yes to this interview. Okay. And I, I just want to say that there's a... Um, I was kind of thunderstruck by a series of posts you did. There are five posts. Uh, the first one uh, was called uh, My Favorite Nightmares, and that was on April 25th. Yes. And then one month to the day later, there was a, another post called Occam, the Occult, and the Ultra-Terrestrials, and that was on May 25th. And in between there, these collection of those posts, it kind of is a swirling uh, bunch of insightful comments and, and, and introspections on, on uh, synchronicities and dreams and comic books and science fiction and Stanley Kubrick, and then also alien abduction. And uh, for some reason, it just slayed me. And I just wanted to talk to you about those specific posts. Yeah, well, that sort of arose. I'd been reading some something I hadn't done in like, I don't know, 20 years or so, like reading some books on contacts and abductions and all those things. And it just, it was weird because it's something that I hadn't really done and hadn't really paid attention to for a long time. And I just started reading about it and it just sort of, I think the thing that really struck me was this whole recurring motif of the white room, the oddly lit white room and I just said you know what that's reminds me of the Stargate sequence in in 2001 and then I just started thinking about it and I was thinking that's not he's not going anywhere he's 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 just that's all happening inside his head that's all implanted 
you know and even and, kubrick in his interviews says something to the effect of that you know that that was a was an implanted memory or like you know that wasn't a real place it was and you know you get to thinking that you know this whole dividing line between real memory and fake memory false memory uh as far as memories that are actually created that are implanted in, in someone's mind and that's what what I was really kept thinking when I was reading all these abduction accounts is that what these people were experiencing was something that was created um, on an interior rather than an exterior level it just struck me that these people were um, encountering something that was creating this drama for them inside their minds and that's why you know sleep and unconsciousness and all these sort of things just seem to be such a through line in all these stories um you know even like the so-called daylight um encounters you know somehow somebody's knocked unconscious or they feel the need to sleep or they wake up you know at the end of this experience something like that it just it really struck me as um like all of a sudden you know, the sort of corpus that I hadn't really paid attention to just seemed a lot more um, compelling, you know? There's a, there's a book by an author named Ida Cannonberg, and I've referred to this more than once. It was a really impressive book when I first read it, which was probably a decade ago. I actually, uh, she's since died. She was 95 years old. She died last year. Uh -huh. um, she talked she was a she had her own set of abduction experiences she went through a period where she was channeling she actually went through a period where she was institutionalized in a mental uh, hospital and it's funny cuz she was she sort of came from the point of view of like this when her writing was done you know in her in her elder years and she kind of came across as a sassy grandmother and she says that the these entities and the way the entities were described wasn't really like they were it was sort of mystical and it was really funny. She actually had a funny way of writing. But she said that they told her that um, the abduction events can be real, they can be physical, or they can be ethereal. They can be like a, like a hypnotic projection that's just implanted into the abductee or the contactee. And she sort of gave some clues to which are which. And then she went through some classic cases and said, you know, oh, this one was actually a real physical abduction where a craft came and they took the body physically, but this other one was not. This was a projection. And she she uh, implied that the, the more mythic qualities take place in the projections. Yeah, well, it's it's funny, too, because they, they, these contacts that I was reading about, a lot of them happened in Europe, and a lot of them happened in the 50s. They had such a mythic feeling to them, you know. I just something about them just seemed very, um, I don't know, timeless <laughs> or universal or I mean something about them. I, I could just I could walk into these stories. It just it was really, um, you know, it was really stunning because it's not really something that I could kind of get. I mean, you know, actually, it's funny because. I actually did reread Intruders a few years ago. I'm not exactly sure. I, I got it. Um, I got it from a book swap, and uh, this might have been I don't know four or five years ago. And it didn't really have this, you know, that, that numinous quality. And you know, maybe it's where my head was at it, at the time. I don't know, but it just it didn't didn't resonate with me. But some of these stories, and you know, it's 
these really capsule readings of them. I was just like, oh, wow, this is, I, I can picture that, you know, I, I, I can walk into this description, you know, this total hearsay description, you know, because this is a witness uh, accounting it to somebody else, and then there's a writer who's, you know, it's a third or fourth hand uh, uh, retelling by the time it gets to me, but it, it just really had a very uh, numinous uh, quality that, you know, the best, the best dreams that have the most compelling, uh, you know, the dreams that you really inhabit, you know, yeah, the, not the ones that just sort of come and go, but the ones that, then they always seem to be the ones that are the most meaningful in, in some ways, the ones that, that strike you as, as, as reality, you know, or, or as, you know, they strike you at your core, they, 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 pluck the string somehow of your like your deepest psyche but also the, the other thing that struck me too is just that i don't want to necessarily say like paranormal you know because i think that term is really overused and i think it's very badly used in, in some ways and and i think in a lot of ways it's a cop-out you know if you don't want to actually try and understand something you sort of just dismiss it as paranormal and that's, you know, that's one of the reasons why I tend to shy away from it. But there was you know, definitely a sort of a sense that, you know, these stories, uh, you know, there's such a, there's a lot of commonalities, you know, as far as event. But there's also like, you know, when people run into like, you know, octopus looking energy beings, <laughs> you know, I mean, just like some of the stories, you know. Oh my gosh, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of the ones that are, are the most... Um, you know, as far as I was just reading one last night, and it was like, um, I think it was in Scotland, and this guy, conf you know, is is con has a contact, you know, this, with this, you know, ball of like energy that has legs and stuff, and, and like the whole thing just seemed like so incredibly bizarre. But at the same time, you know, he has all these symptoms of, you know, like. Uh, this this weirdly strange uh, this strangely patterned burn on his chest that looks almost like a you know like a gridiron or something mm -hmm. and um, you know st thing when you read things like that you know like the thing that really fascinates me is you, you know these incredibly strange stories but then there's like you know traces of of radiation sickness or uh, you know, secondary burns. I mean, all these kind of things that it's obviously not imaginary. You know, and, and of course, there's a, there's a whole corpus of literature that, that argues that, you know, certain contacts with, with you know, ball lightning or certain kinds of radiation or electricity are going to cause uh, hallucination, are going to cause you know, this, this certain memory to be instilled, I guess, you know, because, you know, your brain is, is, is trying to process this, you know, this, this contact. Um, but, you know, I don't know, like, a lot of these guys seem pretty lucid, you know. Yeah, <laughs> it just people, seems like if you, know? you know, like if you you know zap someone with electricity, I don't think they would come up with the the consistent narrative that is so you know sort of rich in detail. Well, see, you know, the thing is, is that, like, one thing I always say, and, and I sound like a broken record, but I really mean it, is that, you know, like, a, a good question beats a bad answer, 
any any day of the week, you know. And I, there's a tendency among us as as a species, you know, particularly the way we're organized in our society as it stands now, is that we need to explain everything. Everything needs to be explained and then put away. You know, it's sort of like the old, uh, you know, the rabbis in, in ancient times, you know, when they wanted to exorcise a demon, they, they had to know its name. You know, and if you knew the demon's name, you could, you could uh, cast it out. You know, this, and that's sort of this whole sense of, like, if you can quantify something and you can pigeonhole it, then you can dispose of it. You know, you can have it done with. So when people you know, have these stories, uh, you know, they're confronted with these people who have this really bizarre encounter or experience, and then there are all these anomalous, you know, uh, streams of evidence, you know, both on the person themselves or, you know, or in the area that this took place, you know, that the, you know, things like gamma radiation always seem to be higher. Um, you know, there's this desperate need to dismiss it somehow, to just say, oh, it's just. It's what I call the, oh, it's just mechanism, you know. And that's something that is a very, you know, more and more now today, you know, the, oh, it's just this, oh, it's just that, you know. And I think that, um, I think that's sort of a, a you know, it's a, it's a much a cop-out as, as, as paranormal is, you know, where, oh, it's just paranormal, you know, you and that's, you know, there's a great line in the X-Files, that's a way to explain something without explaining it, you know, and that's, that's really the way I feel, you know, you're not explaining it, you're just sort of putting it in this drawer marked paranormal, mm-hmm. and, and I, you know, I'm not sure that that's the way to go, but the, the interesting thing is that when you read, um, and this is sort of what I was talking about with this companion, the elusive companion hypothesis, that a lot of this really happened in this whole period following the end of World War II, that the, the, the kiddies started playing with the atomic matches, you know, and, and, and that seemed to trigger something. And, of course, we had, you know, events like uh, in Los Angeles, and I guess it was 41 or 42. So that would have been before the nuclear age, yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's during, you know, because, uh, you know, you have things happening. I'm not exactly sure when the first tests at White Sands took place. But, you know, I mean, if somebody's up there sort of keeping an eye on the project and they start seeing, you know, saturation bombing and incendiary bombing like we saw in Dresden and other places, in I mean, Tokyo, that's, you yeah. know... In, you know, you that, know. That, that hypothesis, I understand it, and, that, and people talk about that all the time, you know, like the kids are playing with the matches, and, the, and the, you know, they, they sort of look through their alien telescope and see the nuclear bomb go off, and that very well might be the, the conclusion, and, and the, certainly the dawn of the modern UFO era came in fast and furious in 1947 with a bunch of things, including Roswell, sure, yeah. including um, the Kenneth Arnold sighting, and including the uh, Maury Island sighting, and... And, and all the associated strangeness that's connected to each one of those cases. But I, I'm just very cautious anytime I, I anthropomorphize the entities out there. Well, I, I can see your point. I mean, the same... The it same very well might that, be true, but I'm just... I just, I just, I, just I always well, to be here's cautious. the thing. The reason why people sort of will lean towards these arguments is that, okay, there's been this constant background hum of sightings, contact stories, you know, all throughout history, 
okay? And then if you really want to get specific about it, I mean, if you start to read like the ancient Gnostic texts, which really describe the archons in the same way that you might describe, you know, the greys or whomever, or, you, you know, the Book of Enoch or the Mithraic Liturgy. I mean, all these sort of stories that are very uh, compelling when, when under, you know, they sort of puzzled people for ages, which is why they became apocryphal. But now when you look at through them through the lens of, of, you know, incredibly high technology, a technology that's so high it, it's basically magical, then they, then they, they unfold. They, they reveal themselves. But, you know, so you had this constant, you know, you'd have these points in history where things would really flare up, okay? But, I mean, when you really, and, you know, a lot of it has to do with the media, too. I mean, worldwide media, telephones, telegraphs, uh, satellite, you know, we're starting to see the, the, the beginning of the satellite age, you know, instant media, television, things like that. I mean... But a lot of the really groundbreaking kind of stories really emerge in the wake of the atomic age. And, it's, and if you really kind of look at it, too, I mean, they, they almost they begin to uh, not necessarily wane, but they begin to sort of, you know, that the whole thing sort of quiets down as the Cold War begins to sort of wrap up. You know, you understand what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. That there's this almost like this spike. You know, if you were looking at a graph, I mean, you know, these peaks and valleys throughout history, and then there's this enormous spike. You know, with Kenneth Arnold and and the Roswell situation and all those things like that. You know, so I you know I understand what you're saying, but I also think that it's it's important in in a lot of ways to to. You know that I think there is like an evolutionary aspect to this whole process. It's 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 almost like you're chasing the carrot, you know, and 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 the carrot in this case, you know, is at the end of a stick, but it's shaped like a flying saucer, you know. Very because much so. if you yeah. really yeah, if you really look at history, I mean, these really crucial periods um, where things like really move and shake, the companions are there. Do you understand what I'm saying? Absolutely, yeah. Or at least, you know... I at mean, least some sort of mythic, uh, you know, undercurrent yeah, exactly. starts to well up. I mean, exactly, exactly. Maybe, you know, this is some sort of union process. Whatever the case may be, whether real or projected, I mean, they're there, they're reported, they're seen, they're experienced. You know, my whole point here, and, you know, the thing that I really want to always keep in mind is that, okay, so... There, there is the imaginal world. There is the, the visionary world. There is the world of the subconscious and, and the world of projection. And, and all that is like very powerful and valid. But then I, there's this whole body of physical evidence. Of course, a body of physical evidence of people who, who want to ignore the reality of this just throw away. But it's there. And, you know, thought forms and tulpas don't leave physical evidence of, of radiation and, and radar and all these sort of things. They just don't. You know, no matter how much you want to wish that they do, they don't. You know, they don't show spikes in, in certain aspects of the radiational field, you know. I mean, all this kind of stuff, they don't, uh, you know, leave 
a soil uh, barren, you know, all this kind of stuff. But, you know, and then to me, like, the reason the whole elusive companion hypothesis is really what I'm sort of working on is, is my model is that I, I've, you know, have a very keen sense of history, particularly ancient history. You know, ancient history is, is an interesting thing in that I, I feel that people were more realistic. You know, we have this medieval period where mankind begins to see itself as the center of the universe and begins to see itself as the apple of God's eye. And it's just shocking to me. Well, I shouldn't say shocking, but it's, it's always surprising to me how many people still want to cling on to that. And the whole idea of aliens, UFOs, you know, ancient astronauts, all this stuff is so deeply threatening to that because really what it is is, is it's a sense of like, well, I'm on top of the food chain, ultimately. You know, there's a, there's a very deep narcissism that is really the core of, of medieval thinking. I mean, medieval thinking is sort of the, the adolescence of, of humankind where, you know, the ego really takes hold. And that's why, you know, people are still interested in things like the Knights Templar and the Freemasons, you know, all these sort of uh, medieval, mystical kind of things, because there's a conception, and I'm not exactly sure, you know, particularly from your understanding and from my understanding, that this whole UFO realm is completely out of our influence and completely out of our ability to interact with it. And, and if you really begin to study this, you understand that that's not the case at all, that, that there is this you know, tremendous uh, interactivity with this phenomenon, you know, particularly with uh, um, you know, certain kinds of meditation, certain kinds of, of, of drugs, certain states of mind. Uh, as, well as, as well as the, with the reports of the contactees. Well, exactly. I mean, you and, know, and it seems to be there's, you know, like what I've gotten into, you know, it seems to be there's a, I'm, I'm just, there seems to be a lot of people who claim this, you know, and and uh, since I started the blog and started, uh, you know, um, oh, sharing some of my experiences, the number of emails and letters and and things that I've gotten has kind of like freaked me out a little bit. It's you know, people are out there with with very real experiences, trying to you know, with, with that don't know quite what to make of them. Well, and again, I mean, I think that in some ways, you know, suppressed sounds like a no. That's a perfect word. Term. Yeah, denial, you know, suppressed. But it's like, sure. I think of people who feel threatened, you know, and that—that that it's really what it boils down to. I mean, people who who feel like so incredibly threatened by this this phenomenon feel threatened because they just feel that it's just completely untouchable in some ways, and. You know, I, I don't believe that that, that that is so. And interestingly enough, I mean, I would argue that people like John Lilly and Philip K. Dick are, are essentially contactees. Absolutely. You know, and, 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 you know, John Lilly, the thing that really fascinates me is, uh, you know, I have, you know, I've told you this before, but I have this enormous and, and growing file of synchronicity on my hard drive. And... Um, Many is the time that I begin to believe that this is not just some quirk uh, of nature, that this is, that there is, you know, that wondering at least if there is some agency behind this, that this is, this is not just a, you know, random 
glitch in the uh, the, the the causality matrix. You know what I'm saying? Oh, I, yeah. I, and oh, I, I know exactly what you're saying. When you read about um, John Lilly's, uh, the whole, you know, John Lilly's whole, I guess you'd almost say theology is is based in synchronicity. You know, uh, the what he called uh, the Earth coincidence something organization. I've, I've you know, Echo. Uh, you know, if I, if I was a uh, <laughs> if I was bright, I would I would have the uh, the meaning to that. You know, but you can just look it up. Just look up Lillian Echo. But basically, I mean, he he felt that the way this 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 entity or organization or whatever, however he chose to define it interacts with with us is through you know basically through symbol and synchronicity you know so uh hey and in, 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 uh, i'm gonna tell a story here i went to a ufo conference this is going back a few years ago and i met a guy who i really liked actually someone pointed him out someone i trust pointed him out and said you should talk to that guy he's interesting so i went over and started a conversation with him he was he, i would liked him immediately super super engaging guy and he claimed a lot of ongoing alien contact and he was quite a talented artist and he had a like a little portfolio book that he opened up for me and said here let me show you some of these drawings and he basically showed the entities that he had been interacting with and these entities were and i'm not mincing words here they are tall beautiful muscular blonde-haired, flowing hair with skin-tight outfits on. And they were... For all so they were Jack purposes, Kirby characters. They were Jack <laughs> Kirby superheroes. And, and believe, I've, I have seen talked, those. I've seen a lot of those. Yeah, and I've talked know, to just, a lot of people who claim the direct experience with them. And, and I will also say, like, if you're going to have an experience with anyone uh, of the you know, sort of pantheon of the, of the aliens that get reported by contactees and abductees, um, boy, you sure want to have the interaction with these folks because they tend yeah. to radiate a sort of power and love that, um, that is consistent across the board when I hear people share these stories. Well, I agree. <laughs> Hey, I, I I haven't myself, but you know, no, and I haven't either. And, and time uh, and, comes, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it just sounds it sounds amazing. And then and the uh, um, hey, you posted an image on the on the post that is titled Occam, the Occult and the Ultraterrestrials. You scroll down there. There's this amazing image from Jack Kirby, which is these three heads, and one is the deviant, one is the human, and one is the eternal. And the deviant looks like uh, you know a, a, a you know, big... cross between a reptilian and a gray, basically. Yeah. Was... Well, you know, it's interesting because I sort of you know put that as grays, but I mean, if you read the 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 Eternals, I mean, basically the the deviants are reptilians. You know, um, it's it, it, the Eternals is sort of Kirby's. You know, it's his late seventies updating of the Thor mythos. I mean, you know, because if you look at the the hero of the of the series, Icarus. He's basically you know he's essentially Thor. So basically, man, the story is is that mankind has two elusive companions, two races of elusive companions. One is essentially reptilian, and one is essentially uh, Nordic. You know those Nordic types that you describe. I mean they're of all races and 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 whatnot, but they are essentially that archetype. And basically, they reemerge. They the the, the reptilian deviants um, live under the ocean, and they are constantly, you know, showing up like a place like the Bermuda Triangle to shoot down planes and things like that. 
and the uh, the the, de- the Eternals live sort of on the roof of the world in the the Himalayas and Shangala and all that kind of thing, Shambhala, and they both have to emerge from the shadows, you know, when the Celestials return, which are the 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 engineers, the uh, the creators of both the human race and the the elusive companions and then that's you know that's sort of this is a uh, <laughs> this one comic book that i remember buying like very vividly in 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 april of 1976 you know and i remember where i bought it and i remember that day very <laughs> very powerfully it was obviously a day when i was imprinting to the max um you know, it seemed to uh, just be this never-ending font of, of uh, correspondence with the, the things that I'm studying uh, in other aspects. You know, but it was essentially Kirby was doing his his ancient astronauts riff. The the the, the book was originally titled "Return of the Gods." And, but, and, um, and what you just described, would, you know, is is like you know what gets what gets shared from the podium at uh, UFO conferences, you know, like. Oh, oh, yeah. Well, and I, I don't I mean, think even that's today, that's, now, you know, many years later. Yeah, I mean, Kirby was um, really obsessed with UFOs. I mean, from at least the the early seventies on. I mean, it, it, every story he did essentially was about UFOs. I mean, this became a complete fixation to him. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure he read a lot of, uh, UFO material. I know he let, he read a lot of conspiracy material because a lot of, a lot of stories that he, he did in the seventies were very conspiracy oriented. But, um, yeah, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me at all if, uh, you know, he was reading these accounts and, you know, he was always looking for story ideas, and his brain was constantly working. And but, and coming from my point of view, it wouldn't surprise me at all if he was, you know, even unknowingly somehow contacted. I'm I'm obviously speculating wildly here. Uh, you know, he was tapping into something. You know, where that was coming from. I, you know, the same thing, the same way. You know, where was it coming for John Lilly? Where was it coming for Philip K. Dick? Well, you know, it's funny because I don't know if necessarily you know it's one of the things that you know this whole elusive companion hypothesis and i i I hope not to be reductionist about it but it's kind of like you know you're you're constantly sensing something out of the corner of your eye and and if anyone watches doctor who the new series uh the, the 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 opening episodes of the series you know they really did this very explicitly that there was this uh, alien race called the Silence, and they were just constantly there. And whenever you 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 had contact with them, you'd in, you'd instantly forget it. You know that they were constantly hypnotizing people to just not pay attention to them. It could well be that we are constantly processing this presence in our lives, and you know certain we we're, we're very well conditioned to to turn the signal off. You know that to 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 block out this signal, and that. You know, for instance, schizophrenics, um, you know, they can tune into the signal, but they can't control it. You know, that it's, it overwhelms them. It, it freaks them out. Uh, certain, you know, look at the ayahuasca experiencers. You know, they're, they're constantly reporting uh, little people and flying saucers and whatnot. I, you know, I, in, in that post, I put just one of the several uh, images that 
these uh, Central American and South American Indians paint of um, of flying saucers, you know, that they they report during their uh, their trips, you know, and Kirby and well, certainly Lily you know, was mainlining ketamine on a, on a constant daily basis for a number of years. Philip K. Dick, uh, you know, Kirby, a uh, little bit harder to pin down, but I, you know, it wouldn't surprise me at all seeing how his work just uh, went completely psychedelic sometime in the uh, mid-60s that uh, he had some sort of, uh, you so, know, someone, experience. Someone slipped a little acid into his, into his uh, coffee? Well, you know, the, the thing that I... The, the best explanation that I could have, and, you know, it's funny because while we're talking, I'm looking at, episodes, uh, at issues of, of the Eternals, and... Um, the, the deviants are definitely reptilian. They have scales and the whole business. Um, but Kirby, you know, had, um, he fought in World War II, and he was right on the front lines. And uh, So, so w- that's, a tr- like, I'll just say that trauma in youth, and often it shows up in the form of sexual trauma, you know, tends to open people up to, uh, oh... I don't want to say expanded consciousness, but but somehow or another that is a consistent, you know, that shows up in the data as far as a pattern. Well, I'll tell you something else. I mean, it could well have been that he was, you know, getting therapy for it, and the therapy was augmented, you know, somehow with some sort of uh, chemical accelerant. I mean, LSD was not outlawed until 66, you know, and there was quite a vogue for it. I mean, people like uh, Cary Grant. Yeah. We're bragging about it, you know. I'm not necessarily bragging about it, but sort of singing its praises. Sort of open about it, yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, so, and I also think about like just the the, the creative process, the, the of sitting down at the desk and and immersing yourself into this kind of fantasy realm uh, to such an extent, you know. I mean, it, it's in a way, it's not a whole lot different than the guy who sits on the mountain and immerses himself in in like the meditative state, you know. The, someone who who had that immense of an output must have. Uh, you know, been able to... Uh, well, that was my original thesis for years. But then, you know, the more you look at it and the more... There are, there are all sorts of very... You know, and I've put a lot of this stuff up on the blog. There's, there's one issue of the Forever People where um, one of the, the, the... You know, the Forever People are these little hippie gods. And one of them keeps these um, capsules in his hat you know it's almost like a bandolier and he's talking to some little kid and the little kid you know holds the capsule and he starts tripping you know so it it is a little too much uh it's a little too specific as far as uh some of the narrative you know that that it wouldn't surprise me at all particularly seeing how radical the shift you know where everything suddenly became crackle and squiggles and all that kind of stuff and i'll tell you something i mean if you go online you can get this um documentary i for years i i've seen this it's it such a funny synchronicity because i was um i had a stack of eternals comics on you know on the floor and i was reading them i was on the couch and i had fallen asleep and i was watching the history channel and when I woke up, they were playing this documentary about, uh, it's, a lot of people have seen it, and I put it on the blog. It's about, like, ancient astronauts and, and shamanism and all this kind of stuff. And one of the things they said is that these shamans, you know, who would undergo these, like, I don't know if it was ayahuasca or something like that, 
you know, they they draw realistic figures, and then they would start to draw um, squiggles and weird geometric shapes and all this kind of stuff. And I, I woke up, and you know, I have this Jack Kirby Eternals comic on my chest, you know, filled with figures and squiggles and bursts of energy, and like they they just basically were describing Kirby. I was just like. You know, and, and and like I said, I mean, if you if you if you go online, I, maybe it's uh, ancient astronauts and entheogens, something like that. But basically, I mean, it's describing Kirby's evolution, you know, and which was was very sudden too. If you if you you know, it's 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 well documented, you know, when everything just started becoming crackle and pulsating, and you know, he he really uh, there's a great quote where he talks about how he. He feels the the vastness of the universe inside him. You know that 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 he that it breathes in him. That you know that he just the cosmos lives inside him, which is just really such a, an amazing uh, thing for a guy you know of his background to be saying. Wow, that is impressive. Uh, and I, I growing up, I was I was much more into Mad Magazine. So this is you know I've sort of found Jack Kirby through. Well, years. I was into both. I mean, I was a huge. One of my greatest pleasures in life is back in the '80s. I had gone to uh, talk at the Society of Illustrators with Mort Drucker and Jack Davis, and oh, um, oh. I, my two, I, those I just, are the, but without a doubt, those are the two deepest influences of in my yeah. Life, and so. and and for like an hour and a half, I just ended up talking to Mort Drucker, and and he was like like one of the most amazing people I've ever encountered and he was so nice and and sweet and kind and supportive and oh it was just an amazing experience wow that's interesting and uh you and know, plus, plus i mean he draws like god i mean oh oh just the the, the with his his you know the how to say it you know the pen you know black ink touching a white page can be so outrageously beautiful and he's just got such a tremendous, oh, just a life and a flair and an excitement to his stuff. Oh, just a genius. Let me just read you this, this, this Kirby quote, because I, I think that, uh, you know, and it's, it's really, it's interesting timing in, in some ways, because I just, yesterday I saw the Thor movie, and it, it, it's basically a, a love letter to Kirby. It's so Kirby, it's amazing. This is what he was saying in a, in a interview in 1990 he said um i used to read the first science fiction books and i began to learn about the universe myself and take it seriously i know the names of the stars i know how near or far the heavenly bodies are from our own planet i know our own place in the universe i can feel the vastness of it inside myself Uh, i began to realize with each passing fact what a wonderful and awesome place the universe is and that helped me in comics because i was looking for the awesome you know so he just yeah, feeling, great. you know, and then I, I think that that's, you know, what separates him from his thousands of imitators. You know, and one of the things that, you know, a lot of people who, who aren't, didn't read, grow up reading comics uh, might have no idea what this is all about. But I mean, it's basically, I mean, this is a guy who just basically changed pop culture that, you know, you name a top movie maker today. And chances are that he just he grew up reading Jack Kirby comics. I mean, you know, Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, George Lucas especially. I mean, Star Wars is just filled yeah. with oh, yeah, very much so. from uh, James Cameron, you know, on and on and on. And just the the whole, you know, that whole constant 
hyper violence and, and everything like that. I mean, video games, all of it, you know. But anyway, so that's that's the whole Kirby thing is that I just find myself constantly returning to this because he just really seemed to have tapped into something uh, very deep. And then, of course, there's the whole, all his prophecies, which are just astonishing but that's an entirely yeah that, that would be a different story, conversation altogether yeah. interview there hey i'm going to change the subject mm-hmm. um 2001 a space odyssey that movie i you know i think a lot of people would agree with me and for me personally that movie just stands alone it is just a, an outlier as far as in the history of the motion picture i just watched it recently it is so profound i saw it in a theater when i was Oh, I was probably, we had to get driven to the theater. I must have been 15 years old. And in Cinerama, it it blew my mind. And it still continues to blow my mind, um, which is amazing to say for a movie that's, you know... Uh, oh, it hasn't it hasn't aged at all. Why, you know, after all these years, is that movie so profound? You know why? Because what you see on the screen is, is sort of at the tip of the iceberg. I think there's so much going on behind the scenes in that film. And I think that Kubrick is... You know, basically telling tales out of school in, in, in many important ways. I mean, it's it's fascinating to me that that film, you know, basically started out that Kubrick just wanted to do a science fiction film. And he had this rough idea that he wanted to base it on the story called The Sentinel by Arthur C. Clarke, which isn't really a very interesting story. It's just essentially that uh, uh, a crystal pyramid is found on the moon. And, you know, the whole point of it is that, that it was left there for, you know, once mankind had reached it, that, you know, there would be some understanding that would, I don't know, whatever. It's not, a, it's not a very interesting story at all. So, also, you know, one of the, the, the features of when I was talking about 2001 in this series that we're discussing here, you know, is the whole thesis of, of Jay Widener that uh, uh, he was involved in creating the sort of Hollywood version of the moon landings for NASA. And a lot of people have take that in the direction of that, you know, we never went to the moon and this was all faked. And a lot of people like myself say, well, this was the, the Hollywood version. And actually, there's, there, uh, there was a story that came out recently, you know, because Widener talks that, that Kubrick was originally approached by JFK. And uh, a story that I put on the Facebook page came out recently that JFK was very, very nervous about the, the, the moon mission. Oh, I read that. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's a little uh, synchronicity, if not something else for you, that, that, that Kennedy was, was very nervous. And it makes perfect sense. I mean, you don't want to send guys up to the moon and, and have the, uh, the capsule explode as it's uh, <laughs> touching down. You don't want uh, some little critters to uh, emerge from behind the rocks and zap these guys with uh, <laughs> laser beams. I mean, who knows what could happen? You know, I, mean, I mean, just the just technical problems alone would have created that, that kind of thing. You, you know, know, so that, it's that kind a of drama. Yeah, I mean, it makes perfect sense that you'd, you would create this. I mean, look at, you know, my favorite example for this is look at the, um, that, that famous icon of the raising of the flag of Iwo Jima. That photo is a reconstruction that that's a posed photo. Um, that you know, the the flag was raised at Iwo Jima, but that image that you're familiar with, and maybe people are less familiar with it today, but this very famous iconic image of the flag being raised at Iwo Jima was posed, 
And I'm sure you can find a lot of examples of this, you know, that the things, uh, and actually there was a story that Obama was saying that he was going to stop, there's something to do with press conferences where there's some sort of recreation or simulation done. So, I mean, this is not a surprise to me at all. And when you're dealing with sending people to another planet, essentially, uh, you know, for the first time, it doesn't surprise me at all that they would want to create a, a gussied up version of it never mind wanting to hide whatever kind of technology they were using yeah. so yeah, yeah. so and anyway the the, the 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 moon mission faking thing i have like you know it's like maybe and i and i enjoy listening to the you know the people who share that i, I think that jay widener gives a great interview and he's a skilled writer and the uh, the subtext of the of the cover-up that shows up in the movie i think is is very is very interesting well, that's the whole point that I was, I was kind of, the thing that I was saying when I, when I was first writing about that film, you know, there's two points I wanted to make. First of all, that people will write all these symbolic interpretations of the film because they don't understand what Kubrick is telling them. But when you look at what Kubrick is actually telling us, it's, it's pretty shocking. You know, I mean, basically it's a story about a cover-up. And it's a cover-up of alien contact, that, that mankind has, uh, you know, this this unmistakable uh, physical contact with, with alien technology. And Haywood Floyd is sent up there to cover it up. You know, he, he, he's a, he's a hush-up artist. He's a bag man, you know. And it's kind of sinister in a lot of ways. And I don't think a lot of people appreciate that. And I, I think that's really kind of interesting in, in that... You know, at the same time, there are all these uh, theories as to Kubrick uh, covering up the actual Apollo 11 mission that uh, he's making this film that's about a cover-up. And, and that's something... A cover-up you know, of, of, like, a moon mission, yeah. Exactly. You know, that, 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 that there was an encounter with an alien intelligence on the moon. And, you know, certainly a lot of people have speculated that, that you know, the moon is crawling with aliens, you know. And, oh, and, and I've heard, I've read a lot of that, and I've heard a lot of it, and I find it entertaining, though I don't quite know what to believe. Well, me, I don't know quite what to believe, but it's it's just it, it's fascinating because Kubrick's making this film, and he's in, you know, what we do know is that he's in contact with a lot of NASA people, and 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 Arthur C. Clarke in particular is connected up the wazoo, no pun intended, uh, with guys in the in the scientific and space program and all these kind of things. So it's really kind of subversive that 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 someone you know as prominent as Kubrick, and someone as incredibly well connected as Arthur C. Clarke, who's not only a science fiction writer but also a major science writer, are making this film. Um, and one of the things you know, I I don't know if I, if I put this on the blog, but at one point I was sort of speculating that uh, the dawn of man was 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 uh, a Roswell um, metaphor. You know, that they're out in the desert. And out in the desert and this thing, like, ends up in their midst? Yeah, and this thing just one morning ends up in their midst. And then it, it, it totally changes their whole their whole and then and, and then all of a sudden they have this technological, you know, that's, I think that that's a, a, a theme I might have to revisit. You know, the, the, the text that we're seeing is that, Man's evolution, which happens overnight, you know, you know, not even overnight, literally in the blink of an eye, 
um, if not less. You know, the bone is thrown up in the air and all of a sudden it becomes a spaceship. It's really interesting to me that uh, it could very well be a story. And, and don't forget that Roswell was something that had, had really been very well covered up and very well forgotten until the late 70s when I guess Stanton Friedman and a couple other people yeah. had started writing about it. If you start to plug in ufology into that film it it, it, it again this whole flowering it, it opens up in a very very interesting way uh, and I think that you know if you say okay well mankind woke up one morning and uh, there was an accident and all of a sudden we had access to all this technology uh, to transistors, for instance, uh, that, that we hadn't had before, and the next thing you know, we're, we're planning <laughs> a trip to the moon <laughs> to find out what, what's going on out there, and then we're sending probes out to uh, Jupiter and the outer planets and whatnot. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, the whole point of this is that this, 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 the story itself doesn't need, you don't need any add-ons, you know. Uh, of course, there's a whole thing that Kubrick was making the point that, you know, for men like Ulysses to go out in the, to the Mediterranean in these tiny little boats, you know, was the metaphor that he wanted to to make with men going out into the uh, the solar system with these these spaceships. But you know, the actual, you know, of course, is intervention slash ancient astronaut theory that we're seeing very clearly as text, not subtext. Uh, we're seeing alien contact covered up. Uh, covered up to the point that uh, it derails this mission because the reason that Hal kills off all the astronauts is that he assumes that they're going to talk. You know, we see the astronauts talking to their families through this uh, satellite communications and everything, and Hal, you know, quite reasonably assumes that this is supposed to be secret and men cannot be trusted to keep secrets. So he kills them. Yeah. You know, and and that's a, that's a point that uh, the Kirby made when when he was doing uh, two thousand one and seventies, the comic version. So, um, yeah, I think it's one of these kind of films that I, I just hits on all these ideas that are, are sort of hiding in the back of our heads that we don't um, outwardly acknowledge. And then, of course, there's all right. So we have you know a possible Roswell uh, metaphor at the beginning of the film, and then we have. Uh, alien contact and slash cover up, and then we have abduction. You know, we have the Dave Bowman goes out in his little pod to see what is sending the signal, and the signal gets zapped into his brain. And then, you know, very much the same kind of n- narrative that we see, you know, particularly in what what fascinated me in the uh, the ancient accounts of this experience, you know, particularly the Book of Enoch and the Mithraic Liturgy, uh, you know, of, of, of seeing the entire cosmos and, it's, and seeing the earth from great heights and all these sort of things that, 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 that Dave Bowman is experiencing. And then where does he end up? He ends up in the oddly lit white room that we see in so many stories, including uh, Travis Bowman's uh, account. Travis Walton. Oh, I'm sorry, Travis yeah, you're Walton's You're blending your yeah. mythic well, characters. Well, you know, yeah. it just goes to show you how it just, uh, it just sort of blends in my mind. And then so there's, that's the, why then I think there's then the, you know, what happens, and, and then Dave Bowman is then vaulted into a, into a higher evolutionary consciousness. He has changed. He's transformed. And, you know, we see him as that fetus that implies so much. 
Yeah, I think that, that Kubrick, I think Kubrick was not only exploring science fiction, but I think that he was being fed a lot of accounts, which let's not forget were classified for a long time. You know, we can read about all this stuff now, but let's not forget that a lot of these stories came to light with the Freedom of Information Act. So he might have been getting a lot of these stories, you know, particularly this whole, de this whole detail of the oddly lit white rum that I, I've read in a, in a number of different abduction scenarios. Uh, and, and then he puts this in the film. And then that he sees this whole process of contact with the elusive companions as, as, as essentially a hyper-revolutionary uh, mechanism, that, that this is going to result in the uh, the transformation of mankind to the next stage of evolution. Yeah, same way. Yeah, the other the point same way I, is, you know, the, the picking up the bone and, you know. Oh, here, that, see, that's the other point that I wanted to make about the film is that, you know, the reason that I sort of make this, this Roswell um, comparison here is that, I mean, what do we see? We see these two um, tribes of apes, you know, posturing and yelling at each other over over a body of water, you know, right? So this is like the Americans, you know, <laughs> staring at the Cold Russians. War. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's the Cold War. You know, it's it. There's a there's a couple battles here and there, but it's mostly just a bunch of yelling and screaming and 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 foaming at the mouth, shaking. <laughs> I haven't heard this at all. This is great. Okay. Saber rattling and all this kind of stuff. You know, so. And that's the interesting thing is that, um, you know, the whole thing with um, the transistor. Now, a lot of people point out that those sort of the precursors to the transistor and whatnot. But look at the chronology. Okay, so, and, and this is something I blogged on in the past as well. And, of course, not only do you have to look at the scientific aspect of this, but then you have to look at the synchronistic and the symbolic and, all, and maybe the paranormal and occult and all these sort of aspects that people tend to want to ignore, particularly, you know, meat and potatoes, you know, UFO guys, ETH guys and, and, and whatnot. But look at the chronology. Okay, so since at least the 20s, you know, the, the idea of the transistor was there. But all of a sudden, you know, Less than six months after the Roswell incident, whatever it was, I mean, and people can draw their own conclusions as what it was. They, people can draw the conclusions as to what all this is. It doesn't bother me one way or the other. But the point is, is that, you know, shortly after Roswell, the transistor shows up. And, you know, I linked to a speech on the blog of, of this guy who was in, involved you know, in the very early days of the computer program that said that this came from alien technology. You know, maybe he's telling the truth, maybe he's not. But uh, this is the same building that became Lucent Technologies. And Lucent Technologies is something that, of course, uh, freaked a lot of uh, conspiracy people out, you know, the, the, in, the, uh, in the 90s because of the whole connotations with Lucifer and whatnot. But, you know, Bell Labs, all this kind of stuff, but but that um, took place in New Jersey. I mean that that's where the uh, transistor was was released. Uh, but it makes perfect sense to me that there were a lot of stories that the Russians and and before them the Germans had recovered uh, craft. Um, and in essence, they were the, you know there was a whole collection of apes touching the monolith and and uh, exactly and and you had to be the first one out. I mean you know whoever got the the, the 
the transistor to, to market first would have, a, have an enormous uh, advantage uh, in the Cold War. I mean, for obvious reasons. Yeah. So, um, it could very well be. I mean, you know, uh, if you look at that film as a touchstone, you can start plugging in a lot of uh, UFO and other kinds of mysteries into that film and, and you know, it comes up roses, you know? Yeah, no, it's it's an it's an amazing blank slate in a way. Well, not blank slate, but it's such a sparse film on so many levels that you can plug in a lot. Hey, let me play this clip. You're going to dig it, I think. Here's a short clip with Leo Sprinkle, and he uh, talks about his meeting with Arthur C. Clarke, which I find very interesting. Here goes. Uh, many people argue that 2012 is a kind of another uh, road sign. Uh, oh, in that regard, uh, I like a story that... Uh, helped me understand early on what was going on. Uh, this was when uh, Arthur C. Clarke, the uh, English writer, came to University of Wyoming and students knew of my interest in UFOs, so he asked me if I'd introduce him. I said, sure. Well, uh, when the student leader was outside talking to the group, she was announcing the program. I asked Arthur C. Clarke, I said, Mr. Clarke, I said, would you mind telling me what your take is on uh, UFOs, flying saucers. Oh, he said they're important or unimportant, depending upon your viewpoint. He was so bright and so arrogant. <laughs> I said, well, do you mind my asking what do you mean by that? Uh, he said, well, uh, they're signs of the time. You know, just like a highway sign, that's a stick of wood and it's a piece of metal. That's not very interesting. But he said the symbol on the uh, sign could be important. You know, bridges out or danger ahead or whatever. So <clears throat> he said, flying saucers are signs of the time. Uh, and he said, as a matter of fact, the night that Stan Kubrick and I decided to film 2001, we had a flying saucer sighting. I said, really? <laughs> wow. And I wanted to ask him what he, you know, what he saw, but uh, we had to go on stage. Never did have a chance to talk with him after that, so I don't know. So if we, if we take his view as correct, you know, for a moment, flying saucers are not important. ETs are not important. Or they are important, depending upon what they represent. They are signs of the time. They are signs that humanity is growing up. And if we are growing up, if the ETs are here to help us, then we might as well get on with the job of growing up. Very interesting. Yeah, I, I think Arthur C. Clarke knew a lot of things that he didn't want to necessarily talk about in public. But at the same time, he did, you know, a lot of sort of paranormal stuff as well, didn't he? You know, World of Strange Powers and all that kind of stuff. Sure, yeah. You know, and it's interesting because uh, we should talk about the paranormal because um, in its in its order. But I I just I suddenly realized that I, I have a lot of paranormal experiences and, and that I I never really think about. But well, here let's let's just are really right kind of remarkable. Because uh, so you you uh, wrote about this was last summer about seeing a glowing figure with your dog. I would love to hear about that. Yeah, well, that's something I did on the blog, and, and the only reason I did it on the blog was that you prodded me, because I was talking about, as soon as it happened, I, w I went home, it was right around the corner, I went home, and I, uh, I was writing about it on Facebook, and, you know, there was this huge sort of thread on that, and then I decided, no, I didn't decide anything, you told me to, I, uh, I blogged about it. And basically what it was is that uh, I was walking the dog late at night. It was about quarter, no, not late at night. It's about quarter to ten or so. And uh, we were walking down the street, and um, 
I saw this this white figure that that didn't make any sound, and you know you know how much sound anything makes uh, on a, on a summer night because of all the you know the moisture in the air and whatnot. So um, this uh, it, and it was interesting too because. Uh, I didn't really uh, communicate this well, but it seemed kind of formless at first. You know, when I when I saw it emerge from the woods, it it didn't it it, it seemed like very strange and formless. And then I was, you know, which makes sense, you know, because you're sort of adjusting to the to the light and whatnot. Uh, you know, there was a street light uh, there, so. But uh, I, I figured I was a kid cutting through the woods and. But the thing is that the figure sort of uh, steps out of the woods and just stops and looks at us as we're approaching it. And then we stop. I'm with my dog. And it would have been the kind of thing that, in retrospect, I would have thought I was insane um, you know, seeing this, this glowing white figure in the middle of the road. But the dog was, was fixated on this. Uh, it was... Uh, it was pretty. It was pretty amazing because, um, and she, she wasn't bark. If it was a person, she would have started barking. She's a very barky dog, great watchdog, but she was just like, "Wow, what's that? This is interesting." And I tried to get a picture of it. I, I, I had my my cell phone with me, and I was Wait, actually you didn't hear. I don't remember this part. Keep going. Yeah, well, I was. I had. I, I had the cell phone, my, and I was trying to use it as a light. <laughs> so absurd you know if it, if it actually was a person probably thought what is he holding a cell phone up to me but uh yeah I and mean, it was just uh and i just said to the dog and you know, i was like let's let's go because i just got a really weird vibe off of it and interestingly enough i just read this story um last night about a contact in, in england uh in the same book that i've been reading that was the same exact kind of story except for the person who came across this uh figure was in a car but it was the same sort of thing that it was sort of cutting through a, a wood and then uh, came out into the road and stopped in the middle of the road and was was staring at the oncoming car uh, and then sort of make made a break for it um, we were only about I don't know anywhere between 30 and 50 feet away so I mean it, it wasn't uh, you know all that far away it was it was nighttime but there's a street light there so um yeah, that was a, a really strange thing. And I came back home and I said to my wife, God, I, I think I just saw a ghost. <laughs> and, so and, then, she, oh, and, and then so she goes, so she's like, oh, my God, I got, I got to go see it. So she goes over there and she doesn't see anything. But as she's walking back. Her. No, I wasn't with her. She went by, by herself. But as she's walking back, you know, just like in a movie, uh, our black cat jumps out of the woods. <laughs> she was uh, we had this black cat, the only cat that we let uh, go out, and she, she was uh, bounding around. And so my wife's trying to find this ghost, and then this black cat comes out of the woods. <laughs> of course, it was ours. But uh, yeah, so that was a really strange story. But when I went back, I, I drove down the end of the road, and then, um, and this is also up in the blog, right at the end of that street, there's this sign saying that somebody had been hit by a car. And that the, the the police you know police call with information you know because it was a hit and run accident, and uh, I wonder if if, the, if that had some sort of connection. But it, you know as I as I reported, I mean you know this neighborhood is very strange. There's a lot of very weird symbolism lying around here, and uh, there was another incident that I I'm not sure if it was a year or two ago, but a girl had. Uh, 
you know, a couple blocks down from where this happened, had uh, jumped in front of a commuter train to commit suicide. So, yeah, strangeness abounds. But there was another interesting story I want to tell you. So, so then, I, you know, I had this, you know, this, and I guess you had said this was a classic story of, you know, the figure coming out of the clearing well, in the woods. Well, that's a classic story, but it definitely has a, it definitely has that uh, spooky campfire feel to it, and that's more what I meant. Where it, it's sort of ambiguous. It's just a short little incident. Nothing really happens, in the sense that um, you know, the meaning of the universe isn't revealed to you. And but keep going. Yeah, but so that you know that happened, and it was very strange. Again, I mean, if if my dog hadn't seen it too, I would have thought it was hallucination or something. I don't know. But um, there was another interesting story. Now, in this neighborhood, there's another interesting story that I, that I wanted to tell. And this story is, listen, I'm going to tell you this story. And I by no means uh, make any claims <laughs> that this story is not completely insane. But uh, it, it's the same neighborhood. It was the same time that this, what was called a screamer, had appeared in a couple neighborhoods. I think one was in Pennsylvania and one was Ohio, but it showed up in our neighborhood. Now, I'm familiar with, you know, like we hear deer scream. You know, uh, male deers, when they're mating, they scream. It's, it's, an, it's, it's kind of annoying, and we hear it a lot. But this, this sound, and it, it only happened uh, a, a couple years ago. I think it was, two, it was either 2005 or 2006, and then it happened back in the 80s in a, you know, an entirely different neighborhood that I was living in. But it sounds like a woman screaming, a blood-curdling, horrifying scream. And my wife heard it, and actually she, she was down in the basement. She heard that she came running out because she didn't know what the hell was happening, and that the scream, she said, was up in the trees. And, and then was traveling down the road on the treetops, which is just completely insane. You know, believe me, I'm not making any claims that the story isn't completely insane, but it, it happened. Um, so there was this whole thing with this screamer, and uh, it was just for a, few, a short period of time uh, a few summers ago. But, so I was up late one night, and it was about 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning, and I heard the scream in the yard. And I was like, I got to see what the hell this thing is. Because, you know, I had assumed that it was an animal, some sort of animal that, you know, God knows what it was. So I go outside, my backyard, very well lit. You know, we have a very bright light in the back porch. And, and right around the corners, the, we have two lights on the front porch. So the, the, the side yard is very well illuminated. And I'm hearing the scream. And I, I have an orange. And I throw the orange, because it's right behind this bush in the stream. And boom. You know, and then the scream stops. So I'm waiting for whatever it is to, to run out. Because if it's an animal, it's going to freeze for a moment, and then it's going to bolt off. So something very strange happens. I'm standing on the front porch, and whatever this creature is comes running out towards me. Not away from me. Not away from the guy who's throwing projectiles at it. <laughs> it comes running towards me. And believe me. I'm not going to say that this doesn't sound completely insane. One second, it was a raccoon. And the next second, it was a cat. And it's looking directly in my eyes as it's running right past me. It's, it's coming from, from, the, uh, from the stream, you know, from an angle. And it's coming up towards me. And then it runs right past me. But the whole time, it's looking directly in my eyes, which no animal would do. You know? Never, it would never happen. It was, it was just completely bizarre. I mean, and, and maybe, how big of a raccoon? 
just you know raccoon size. Okay. I mean, okay. No, I, no, I mean, no, I'm, not I'm, necessarily bigger or smaller or anything. No, no, no. Just perfectly normal. Perfectly, you know. Just I, I, I you know, it's like oh, so it's a raccoon that makes that sound, which makes sense if it was up in the trees and everything. But it wasn't. It was like one minute it's a raccoon. I mean, not even one minute. Once, and it's not like there was some like cinematic morphing effect. It was just like like that. And I, I was just like, and the thing that just freaked me out is that it stared me in the eyes as it was running past me, which a cat would never do. Uh, you know, maybe a raccoon is a little more bold, but it's you know, I, I've never heard of that happening either. It was just completely bizarre. But this is just sort of the background. That that the, this might be you know, like a doorway area. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, um, I mean, it's just very bizarre. You know, and and the thing, the funny thing is about it is that it's like I don't really think about these kind of things. It's like it happened. And I was like, God, that was really strange. But it didn't like change my life, and it didn't, you know, n- nothing became of it. You know, I mean, the same thing with the uh, that white figure. You know, but it just it sort of struck me that like. You know, because I also talked about this uh, this haunted house uh, that I spent some time in when I was a kid. That I I was completely oblivious to the fact that it was haunted, but this was all happening when I wasn't there. Um, and how did you find a, it was haunted? But a meet. Well, I, there was just this whole whole story about it. But um, a medium was called in because guests at this house had actually witnessed this thing. Uh, had seen it uh, at night, and uh, a you know medium was called quote unquote medium was called in to uh, sort of you know quote unquote cleanse the house. But it, the interesting thing about that, and I wrote about this on the blog as well, is that um, this woman who had seen this this figure, and it was a figure of an old woman coming down the stairs and, and going into the kitchen. When she had gone gone back to her own house, her she she opened the door. And walked in the house, and the house was crawling with snakes. Snakes, and this is in, snakes. This is in Massachusetts. This is in Massachusetts. This is this is in Cohasset. This is on the beach. So I mean, not a lot of snakes in in the neighborhood. You know, snakes don't like sand and beaches and all that kind of stuff. So that was another uh, kind of oddity. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what to make of it. Huh. But this is the, but this is interesting because this is the same town that the uh, film The Witches of Eastwick was filmed in. Wow. This yeah. Gets... So. Hey, I'm going to jump back <laughs> to um, the Kubrick thing a little bit, and well, actually, it's not oh. so much a Kubrick thing. I sent you a book a while back, and um, there is Watchers it's called The Watchers by Raymond Fowler. Hey, I'm just going to say the, the, so. The author Raymond Fowler is a uh, UFO researcher. He wrote the Andreas and Affairs series. He wrote an excellent book called The Watchers, which I think is like the third in the Andreas and affair series uh it changes names it starts out as the andreas affair and then turns into the watchers and it's interesting cause ray fowler claims to be a ufo abductee and he just turned 80 you know, within the last few years and then the clip i played for you earlier was from leo sprinkle who just turned 80 just last august mm-hmm. and he also claims to be a ufo abductee and and didn't uh kubrick or not kubrick huh, i'm blending my um Kirby do a comic book called The Watchers? No, a character in the Fantastic Four. Okay. The Watcher who lived on the moon. Okay, well, here we go. Kept an eye on the uh, goings-on. Yeah, well, that's the whole... I mean, that that comes from... That comes right from the Bible. I mean, that... Yeah, I mean, well, before the Bible, the stories that the Bible were, were based on. I mean, the whole idea of the Watchers sort of left behind... 
you know, and I'm not exactly and, sure. And that's the, the, the title, The Watchers, comes from uh, uh, Betty Andreessen, basically asks the aliens, and the aliens appear as the gray aliens. She asks them, who are you? And they reply, we're the Watchers. The, the, the thing that I thought was most interesting about this, and it was just like two pages really out of that book that really blew me away, where uh, Ray Fowler, and I've never read this anywhere else except in this book, he talks about uh, the, the chimpanzee, the human and the gray alien, and he talks about the fact that if you know if we're in the middle, right? So so there's this this and this is exactly the same uh, the triad as the uh, 2001: A Space Odyssey. You know, it starts with the chimpanzees, it, and there's the you know the human section in the middle, and then the culmination of the whole movie is this gray alien that sort of appears as this fetus. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, and he talks about the fact that. And there's a study of, of when you study fetuses, and I can't remember what it's called, embryology or something like that, where the human fetus, which is portrayed in the movie 2001, looks very much like a gray alien. It's got big eyes, it's got a giant head, it's got this tiny little body. And then if you go backwards to the chimpanzee, which presently on the planet right now is our closest genetic family member it's our closest genetic cousin you know if you look at the which is disturbing because chimps are evil but go ahead and they're, they're the and uh yeah like if you actually look at the dna of a human and a dna of a chimp like the the question the problem that the geneticists are confronted with is like well why aren't we chimpanzees because they're so close the chimpanzee obviously looks very different but the fetus of a chimpanzee you know before before the chimpanzee gives birth bears a striking resemblance to a human well, did you send me that that chart that showed all these, like dogs and cows and all these different oh no uh, animals? Me. Like there's all the you know all the mammals, like all the fetuses of all these different mammals at at a certain early stage of the development are all essentially identical. Exactly. Yes. You know, and and then they sort of branch off into whatever their genetic code. You know, <laughs> that's that's pretty amazing. I mean, here's the thing. I, to me, that's like we're almost like in this intermediary stage, and it's like I remember um, Alan Watts. You know, he talked about how you know the the children experience the world in, in, in a very pure way because they're very open to everything and they're learning things very quickly, and their brains work in a certain way that they have this very open and receptive experience of the world but then adolescence sort of like uh, the hormones and everything you start to you know the, the the ego and the narcissism and the certainties and all these sort of things begin to take hold and that you know i've always said that you know the stupidest stage of 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 humanity is adolescence you know that that and it's funny because when i think of myself as a child compared to when i was adolescent when i when i seem like so much more aware and so much more intelligent when I was a child than when I was an adolescent. So, you know, I just think of my adolescence as an extremely stupid time. But we are sort of like in this adolescent phase, you know. But we are going, like our science is going to lead us away from what we presently believe. And it's going to do so with a lot of kicking and screaming. You know, it's not going to be pretty because people invest themselves in the status quo. And I think... You know, it doesn't matter what evidence or proof. And, you know, and, and actually there was this guy, um, this guy named Phil Plate, who was sort of running the Randy racket for a while and had his, 
uh, short-lived TV show on astronomy and everything. But he basically said that, you know, even if an alien lands in his front yard, he's still not going to believe it, you know. And basically it's because these, there's a certain class of people that needs to see themselves as the supreme beings of the universe. But this is like a very adolescent phase, you know, and, and our science is going to reveal things in such a point that maybe these elusive companions, if, if indeed they exist, will not be very elusive for much longer. Maybe this, you know, what you're talking about, this next stage when the contact becomes not this sporadic and, and isolated event, but something that begins to take hold, something that begins to snowball, you know. And that's when the entire game changes, you know. But it will, you know, this, you know, science will be part of it. But maybe science will also begin to realize that there are limits to science. You know, there are things that science cannot understand because humanity as it exists now can't process things. You know, that, that not everything can be understood by creatures that are that are that are mortal, that are in, you know that are finite rather than infinite. That you know, creatures that that have to use this very limited set of sensory data to get by. You understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And maybe that you know what we call paranormal and all these kind of things is just um, it's when something you know and this is what i what i what i think about a lot you know when you start to think about a the signal this 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 constant presence that we only become aware of in certain ex- extreme circumstances um but maybe you know we can't function the way we need to at the present moment with too you know too much awareness can become a bad thing I mean, you that's, the, that's the, the chimpanzee, right, Get, gets kicked out of the garden. The, uh, the chimpanzee had a knowledge of was, um, you know, just sort of, I don't know how to say it, you know, like the magnificence of, of innocence. And, you know, sort of the, the tree of knowledge is what, you know, God has sent out of, the, out of the garden. And somehow or another, it seems that, I'm just using that as a metaphor, I don't really believe that ever happened, you know, it seems like there's something about our hardwiring. It, se- it seems like there's some part of us that is, is designed to be capable of denial. And maybe well, that'll change. Denial in a maybe lot that'll of... change when we, when we become, you know, the, uh, you know, Dave Bowman comes back, you know? Well, it, denial in a lot of ways is, is a survival mechanism. Sure. You know, just denial... You know, it's funny because this is something I think about a lot, you know, because a lot of, I guess, maybe New Age or whatever, you know, it's like everything is about consciousness and, and, and you know, all this kind of stuff. And it's like when I was, um, I did an interview with a novelist named Jonathan Latham, and he's a big Kirby fan, and he'd written this book of memoirs um, in which he talked about sort of encountering these 70s Kirby comic Eternals is one of them, 2001 is another. But when I interviewed him, you know, we talked about how, you know, the psychedelic mindset and that in the 60s it was very, you know, flowers in your hair and very idealistic and, and very optimistic. 
you know, but he had said that, you know, gazing into the raw face of infinity is, <laughs> you know, not very uh, conducive to, to the human ego, you know, that, that, uh, that experience that, you know, Dave Bowman's trip could have gone either way. It could have just driven him completely insane to his, uh, you know, to, to, to a catatonic state or it could, uh, you know, result in his apotheosis. But, you know, never assume that apotheosis is the guaranteed outcome. You know, the screaming abyss uh, is, can, is, can swallow you much, yeah. is well named for a reason. You know, maybe there are those who can navigate it, but maybe there are those who cannot. I mean, look at how the drug culture and the drug explosion of the, of the 60s, you know, I mean, look at, uh, you know, for instance, all the serial killers that we saw in the 70s. I mean, you know, they weren't all mind control puppets or whatever people want to excuse them as. You know, a lot of them were just people who couldn't process, you know, that, that there was this huge uh, explosion and then people just freaked out, you know, and couldn't deal. And, you know, never assume that, you know, this is why... You know, you can't, you know, it's nice to talk about Space Brothers and and Pleiadian Lightworkers and all this kind of stuff, but we aren't really there, you know. We, 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 we want to be, we aspire to be, but we are uh, um, much more uh, limited than, than I think um, we, we'd want to give ourselves credit for. And I, I think that, you know, the wisdom of, of, of age, you know, of being the age that we are today, you know, you really, it's, it's, a, it's a humbling experience, but I think, you know, there's a great uh, wisdom in that as well. It's like, I, I, I no longer believe that I, I know the answers that will save everyone. You know, <laughs> I, know, I know how everyone should be living their lives, that I know, you know, the one size that fits all that will save the universe. You know, I don't think that way. I, I think that, you know, to getting to... Uh, the other side of whatever chasm we're, we're muddling through now is going to be extremely painful, you know. But closing our eyes and, and wishing that data and information and experience that doesn't fit into our pre-planned, you know, set of, of uh, preconditions that we're trying to impose on the universe you know, that's not going to work either. You know what I'm saying? I, you know, it's, it's a really interesting thing that's happening right now in a lot of ways because there's disillusionment is, is rife. But I've always seen that as a, as a positive thing. You know, we want to cling to our illusions. But at the same time, you know, the illusions can lead us, you know, into a dead end. But at the same, but then you know, at the same time, there's disillusionment. There's also the possibility of reenchantment that that we can begin to, if we dispense with our illusions, we can also understand how illusions are created, and we can also understand how to uh, begin to reconstruct, you know, a new uh, reality consensus. You know, uh, if if one is not imposed on us from without, you know, which is unfortunately, is a ever-growing possibility at this point in time. Hey, did you see the, um, this is, I'm going to jump back a little bit to the 
to the 2001 thing. You've seen the obviously seen the clip of Buzz Aldrin where he talks excitedly about the monolith on the on the moon of Mars. Oh sure, yeah, I put that on the blog. I put that on the blog on the same post that I, uh, you know, this weird thing where Kirby had Captain America travel from a Stargate on the moon to uh, a movie studio. Oh God, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, so um, I mean, one of the quotes. So Buzz Aldrin like gets all excited. He talks about the you know this monolith on the moon of Phobos. You know this little potato shaped thing you know, going around Mars every seven hours, and you know people are going to ask questions. You know when they find out about this thing. You know who put it there, and then it, the quote is interesting. He says, "Who put it there? The universe put it there. God put it there." And I, in a funny way, that that little clip sort of sums up like a lot. I mean, here's like the guy, you know, the second guy to actually walk on the moon, very similar to the, you know, the scene in 2001. I don't and think he walked on the moon. I, didn't he stay in the lander or something? No, he was on the moon. The other guy, guy some, some guy named Mike, was up in the uh, in the in the. Uh, it's always some guy named Mike, orbiting, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, some guy named Mike. Yeah, we're always left out. And the guy named Buzz gets all the glory. Because he and Neil Armstrong had to do the uh, Masonic ritual, right? I guess so. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so I just found that fascinating, that little clip. You know, I think he's a, he's a little bit of a, a trickster himself, you know. I think that he's um, playing games, you know. Uh, you know, a monolith isn't made by God, you know. A monolith is a, uh, is a description of an artifact. You know what I'm saying? You know, you never know. I, I, I've learned at this point to, to, to not really put a lot of stock in his, his pronouncements. But that, that nonetheless, it is, a, it is a very interesting thing in the context. Oh, of it absolutely is. But who knows what's really going on there, you know, and who knows what he wants to tell us but, but can't, you know? Yeah. Hey, um, uh, there was a little news article, and it was of a a supposed meteor that landed in New Jersey. And I understand that was actually kind of close to you. Yeah. Yeah. That was the day I did, um, which, which post was it? That was the Cooper post. Yeah. Well, that's interesting because, well, there was a few few different Cooper posts, but, um, the day, you know, it's funny. It was the day that I sort of struck on this whole, uh, elusive, companion hypothesis that that sort of solidified of course i mean that's sort of very closely related to crypto terrestrials and the ultra terrestrials i just thought it was a bit more uh i don't know maybe a bit more precise crypto terrestrials just seems a bit imprecise mm-hmm. you know and that's uh, that yeah and you know that's happened before uh that kind of thing basically what happened is that um there was a some something that fell from the sky, uh, not too far from where I'm sitting right now. How far is that too far? Um, maybe a mile. Oh, oh, that's close. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. I actually um, the next morning after I discussed it with you, I drove by and, and looked at it. But basically, this this mysterious uh, and it made the news and everything. This mysterious event happened. Uh, the day that I had posted that um, turning point of a, of, a, of, a, of a blog article, it was uh, classified as a meteor hit, but unfortunately it left no evidence of any kind. Uh, it left a giant crater in, in somebody's front yard, but no evidence, uh, no particulate matter, no dust, <laughs> I mean, nothing. It's just, it looked, you know, it, 
when I, I couldn't help but think that uh, maybe it was some sort of test firing of some sort of beam weapon, but there was there wasn't even any uh, you know burning or it was just completely bizarre. But uh, the thing that it reminded me of is that you know I, for years and years and years I didn't think about UFOs or anything like that, and I'd gone out to um, to Esalen and met Jack Fillet and some other people, uh, you know, for this uh, private symposium. And it's interesting because it was very weird that week. People, like, were having some issues, you know. Uh, everybody who, who had been there for the first time, including myself, were, were not, you know, not really on an even keel. There was a lot of um, emotionalism going around there. And uh, shortly after I left, um, when I flew back home, uh, there was a very strange event. I think it was in Humboldt County, uh, where uh, a, a very anomalous uh, electrical storm, and that, of course, kicked off what are known as the, uh, the Big Sur wildfires. Now, the interesting thing about the Big Sur wildfires is that this fire sort of burnt down the coast, made it to the gates of Esalen, and literally the flames were licking all around uh, the compound, but uh, never quite reached. You know, they, it just sort of stopped. It was this ring of fire, literally a ring of fire around, around uh, the grounds of Esalen. But this, the, that whole uh, meteor strike at the beginning of the, a few weeks ago now, uh, right around the corner from here, sort of reminded me of that when I had this sort of weird uh, alien-related uh, realization followed by some sort of bizarre anomalous phenomenon. <laughs> and I just think of the bizarre anomalous phenomenon that Leo Sprinkle talks about, where where Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick saw a UFO the night they decide these things. I think these these events. You know, well, that's what I was talking about. It just seems a little more interactive than than we would like it to to be. And uh, that's that's the that's the thing, the denial. I mean, that's like there's a lot of UFO researchers who won't go there. You know, like if you talk, there's some who do, obviously. But when you talk about the interactive nature of this thing, and they'll just kind of shrug their shoulders and say, "Oh no, 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 no. Let me just like." Stick well, that's to the, the Stan, you know, Stan Friedman, who's just you know, these are space scientists, you know, they're, coming they're from us. Yeah, they're they're, they're um, you know, he's anthropomorphizing. Yeah. I don't believe that at all. I, I don't believe that um, what we call aliens are, in fact, aliens. You know, maybe I'm not discounting entirely the possibility that um, we get visitations from time to time, but I think what we call aliens, this, this entire constellation of, of phenomena, is not alien at all. It's been here longer than us. And uh, in the words of Charles Ford, all others warned off. I think that logically, and 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 let's just let's just look at this purely as a thought. If you we just looked at UFOs and aliens and all these kind of things, just as purely as a thought experiment, you know, a computer model. I think at the end of the day, that computer model would would conclude that this is not an alien phenomenon at all. That this is is something that is. You know, this is why I term this the elusive companion hypothesis, and why. Um, John Keel termed it the ultra-terrestrials, and, and Mac Tony's termed it the uh, crypto-terrestrials. I think that this is a phenomenon 
that uh, has been here longer than us and has been with us the entire time that we've been here and, uh, you know, has peaks and valleys depending on, on what we're up to and uh, seems to be very much attuned to us. Uh, you know, there's that great line uh, in the Mothman prophecies, um, you know, when the John Keel character says, uh, you notice them and they noticed you noticing them. You know, I think there's a lot of that involved in this. You know, maybe that's that's pretty frightening in the implications of that, you know. When John Keel died, I, I did a post called uh, The Mothman in Me because I have all these strange synchronistic connections to The Mothman, uh, not the least of which is that my book editor and my, my last three books, uh, all at different companies but the same editor, was uh, born and raised in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Ah, and very clearly remembers the uh, Silver Bridge collapse and the Mothman and all that kind of thing. So, uh, and she was a young girl at the time, but she was there for it. But I also, uh, you know, I also posted on that on the blog as well, and that ties into Esalen as well. Hey, so. um, this has been great. I'm really happy with the way this turned out. So I'm just, I'm yeah, just me too. Keeping notes. Um, let's just end it here, and I'm just going to say one more thing. You quoted uh, Herbert Shermer. And uh, he was uh, the contactee from the early 70s. Was it late 60s? Late 60s. Late 60s. And um, ironically, the same name as the famous, uh, different spelling, but the same surname as the famous uh, obnoxious. Uh, oh, debunker. Debunker yeah. character. Yeah. And um, so his, he, you know, when asked, you know, about the entire event, uh, Herbert Shermer said, uh, you know, like, why are they here? And his response was, to a certain degree, they want to puzzle people. They know they are being seen too frequently, and they are trying to confuse the public's mind. Everyone should believe in them some, but not too much, which I thought was really interesting coming from that. And that does sort of dovetail really tidy with this uh, elusive companion hypothesis, you know, that we are somehow intertwined with this other phenomena, and this other phenomena is, is doing two things. It's, it's being seen at the same time it wants to be, you know, at the margin. Yeah, the thing that really struck me about that is that it reminded me so much of the descriptions of the men in black. The whole idea of that they put on this really bizarre show so nobody will believe them. Purposely being theatrically bizarre, just so it's that much easier to dismiss. Well, if you look at the UFO phenomenon, you know, why do you see the, you know, again, the, getting back to this whole idea that there will be these certain strands of you know, these certain sort of bullet points <laughs> that you, you, these contact events will have. But then there'll be all these different creatures that people are seeing, you know. It's, it, to me, it's almost, it's, it reminds me of like plausible deniability, you know, that, that uh, there's this, this contact experience that all sort of revolves around some sort of accidental sighting and then stems from there, you know. It's this whole idea of um, plausible deniability that... If you you know if everybody reported that they saw grays, after a while people are going to have to say, okay, well there are grays out there. Yeah. But well, this person saw a gray, and this person saw you know a lizard, and this person saw an energy being, and this person saw a Nordic, and this person saw a troll kind of looking thing, and this thing you know you know on and on and on and on. People just throw up their hands and just say, this is this is all madness. Yeah. But I think, you know, if in fact, you know, if we follow this elusive companion hypothesis that, that, that this is all being staged, you know, for, to, to sort of lead us 
but but not too closely, you know. Keep us on a leash, but not a, a nice long one, in other words. Hey, thanks so much. Okay. I um I thank you and uh talk to you later. Good night now. Bye bye. I want to end this whole thing by reading a short quote, and this is from uh, The Secret Sun, and the post is uh, titled, Occam, the Occult, and the Ultra-Terrestrials, and this is from May 25th, and it is linked on the uh, show notes. This is how, this is how the, uh, the post ends. He's talking about Jack Kirby, the uh, comic book illustrator. Here goes. Kirby not only knew things he shouldn't have known, but he didn't even know he knew them. As far back as the Mithraic Mysteries, and all the way up to the modern ayahuasca ones, strange flying disks show up when a certain state of mind is reached. It's almost as if there's a signal out there, one that's usually filtered out. Shamans, occultists, sick children, and other thought criminals seem to pick up on the signal when the stars are all aligned. It's a fleeting state but it's driven forward our evolution in ways we don't quite understand. Okay, that's the kind of stuff that really resonates strongly with me. Um, talking about a, a list of individuals, a list of shamans that can tap into some elusive signal, some ever-present signal. Uh, in light of this conversation that we just had, I'm going to add a few more. Um, I'm going to add artists, Stanley Kubrick, Jack Kirby, psychics, People who take psychedelics, I'm going to add John the Baptist, let's say trauma survivors, Carl Jung, near-death experiencers, and um, and maybe most important in the context of this blog are alien abductees, or people who claim the direct contact experience. Uh, somehow, these folks, this big long list, are tapping into some elusive signal. That signal is getting filtered out, maybe by our genetics, but it's getting filtered out nonetheless. Uh, it seems to be a conscious effort or something welling up uh, as a subconscious effort to be able to tap into that mysterious signal. And I am going to agree with Chris, that signal is ushering our species towards some higher evolution. Uh, as lofty as that sounds, I, I feel, is what this evidence is bearing out. Okay, all that said, I'm going to play another clip from Leo Sprinkle, and this one talks about uh, him and the times he has met Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan, who was very much anti-UFO throughout his career, and at the same time, he did write a book called Contact that deals with uh, interactions with alien species, and the alien interaction comes... Uh, less in the nuts and bolts format and much more in a other dimensional format. Uh, so that's interesting to think about when you look at Arthur C. Clarke and Stanley Kubrick and how they tackled this same subject. This short audio clip is uh, Leo's response when he was asked if he thought that Carl Sagan knew more than he was letting on about the UFO phenomena. The answer is interesting. That uh, I didn't get that sense the first time I met him in 66, but later on, some other people and I were working with a couple of uh, young women who had had a strange experience in Colorado, and later, the young woman was an assistant to Carl Sagan and uh, met uh, with him again when they were talking. 
I don't think I'm telling anything that isn't appropriate to say, but the feeling I had then was that, yes, he knew much more. And uh, Dr. Richard Boylan uh, has received information, and I don't know how accurate it is, from inside sources which claim that there are several people who were uh, privy to uh, a monolith, kind of like the 2001 story, you know, mm-hmm. that, that uh, some astronauts brought back, supposedly a, a CIA man and supposedly a, a military man and supposedly Carl Sagan. And uh, the man, Michael Wolf, I think that this is information that has been become public. Whether it's true or not, I don't know, but the information says that Michael Wolf. Uh, who was a bright, bright guy and I've talked to him by phone, didn't meet him. He and Carl Sagan and this other guy all were exposed to this monolith and they all died later of cancer. But that was before they realized how much radiation there was. If that story is true, then there is a lot more information that uh, many people have uh, that's being withheld from the public and maybe for good reason. So I don't get too worked up about that. I figure the truth will come out sooner or later. And meanwhile, we have work to do. Okay, one more reference to the monolith as as a something that um, who knows? I, I'm a, I'm in a complete loss, and uh, I'm very skeptical of many of the claims of Richard Boyland, and uh, and I'm also. I don't want to say skeptical, more mystified. Uh, the character of Michael Wolf is uh, this is something that if, if folks listening to this haven't looked into, um, this would be easy to Google. Maybe I'll include some links here. Yeah, he's a very, very curious character, uh, straight out of you know what would be the most mysterious X-Files episode. Um, yeah, very, very interesting character. As always, I thoroughly enjoy any time I get a chance to talk to Christopher Knowles. He's an impressive guy. It feels like we covered a lot, and I hope you, the listener got something out of it. If you made it this far, thank you so much.
Okay, this is Mike chiming in again. Uh, small little update. Just so folks know, Christopher Knowles and I had a conversation a couple nights ago before we recorded this uh, this post here. And in that one, uh, you know, we kind of went on a rant a little bit. Uh, we had to set us questions, which completely got thrown out the window. And we were all over the map. It's a little bit frenetic. Um, and uh, not very tidy as far as an interview, but uh, there's a lot of good information in that. Um, just uh, heads up to people listening, somewhere down the road, uh, you, you might just be able to listen to that whole conversation. If you've made it this far, thank you so much. Bye now.